0: Our scripture this morning comes from Luke 11, verses 14 through 23. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons... Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him and takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to the Advent season, isn't it? Uh, It comes on you really quick, doesn't it? Uh, That right after Thanksgiving we get into uh, all of our preparations for Christmas. Let me encourage you. uh, Your staff has put a lot of time into thinking through the themes that we're going to be working through. You'll notice, I know Jonathan's already referred to it, but I wanted to, too. You'll notice that there's uh, family devotions. We we labored whether to just give you one to do or whether to give you one to do every week. We figured three at some point over the next seven days would be a great goal for most families. For some of you, one-third of one might be a good goal, and that's okay. But if you want to spend some time with your families and worship uh, this season, that's going to be available for you. It's really cool online. You can just access right there uh, the songs that we refer to and whatnot. So uh, please, uh, we hope that you enjoy uh, this season with us. As we go through Advent, we're going to be changing directions just a little bit, staying in Luke. But we're going to be talking about this theme uh, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And the way we're going to do it is, is we're going to take a passage from Luke's gospel like this passage here in Luke 11 that really has, has to do with the kingdom. And we're going to use the, the, what they call the nativity, uh, the nativity stories at the beginning of Luke's gospel to kind of flesh out those passages that we're looking at. So we're going to be kind of in both places every week, centered around a theme uh, dealing with the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And it's a really important theme in the Bible and particularly in the gospels. And it is for Luke as well. And so whenever you come across this theme, and, and if I could summarize uh, what we want to talk about for the next few weeks for you, if you're reading your Bible and you come across the, the theme, Kingdom of God, here's really what you should, it should cause you to, um, to really think about, to really um, meditate on. Uh, two things. The first is, when you see the Kingdom of God, it's an immediate reminder to you that the world is no longer what it once was, that things are not Right? That the world is under a great shadow, that evil's afoot, and things are not as they should be. So, the Old Testament prophets in the passages we read, particularly at Christmas time anyway, evoke images of darkness and gloom and exile to describe our lives in this world. The Kingdom of God language evokes those images because it reminds us that something very dear truth, beauty, goodness something very dear has been lost. The world is no longer what it once was. And so there's sadness, and we light a candle because we are those that sit in the darkness, and we continue to light candles all Advent because the, the, the light is dawning. And that's the second thing, that when you see the words, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, not only do they remind you of what has been lost, but they also hold out hope that it won't always be this way, that the world is not what it once was, but it is also not yet what it will one day be, that life will be become something more than this in fact life is becoming something more than this the kingdom of god is the promise that god will break into human history in fact that god has broken into our world in the person of jesus to change things forever that aslan is on the move that the thaw has come spring is here see the kingdom of heaven in many ways is gospel it's the gospel. Jesus' first recorded sermon in Mark's gospel was simply, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He connects the kingdom with the gospel. The kingdom is the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. It refers to all that God is doing in Christ to save us from sin and death, <clears throat> Excuse me, and to restore all that has been taken from us. The gospel, God's good news, is so much more, so much more, than that you get to go, that you, you know, if you believe in Jesus, you get a sparkly soul, and one day you'll float up to heaven and, and, and ride around on clouds playing harps all day long for all eternity, like the old Bugs Bunny cartoons would have it. It's cartoonish. It's not biblical. I mean, the gospel's so much more than that you get to go to heaven when you die. We have individualized and personalized and consumerized salvation, and the kingdom won't let us do that. It cuts against the grain of this individualized, sentimentalized Christianity that we've become accustomed to because when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God has come upon you he's challenging our understanding of God's work in Christ. The gospel is not that when you die you get to leave this world behind and go to heaven. The gospel is that in Jesus Christ heaven has come to earth. And he's come down from heaven to earth to change you, to change me, to change everything. Everything. So what God is doing in Christ is so much bigger than you, it's so much bigger than me or this church. No pain, no tears, no no death, no more goodbyes, everything whole, everything beautiful, everything good, all things made new. That's the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is a pregnant phrase. When you come across it in your Bible reading, you should feel The same time, sadness and longing for what was, and hope and joy for what is to come, all at the same time. And this is what Advent is about, really: this waiting, this longing, uh, living in the tension between how things are and how God says they one day will be. And this is why it's such a great topic for us to consider for these four Sundays leading up to to Christmas. So this morning, uh, and we're going to try to condense and simplify our our outlines a little bit over the next few weeks. But this morning, we just want to look at two things, and. First, we want to, you know, what, does, what is the kingdom? Uh, what do we mean by God's kingdom come? That's what we want to talk about first. That the kingdom is God's love and power, uh, the power and the love of heaven breaking into the world. Heaven on earth, that is, that is really what we mean by the kingdom. And if that is really what the Bible means by this phrase, then what in the world should our response be? How should we respond in light of what God says he's doing so those are two things, and then we're just going to make a, a little point of application at the very end. So let's start here first. What, we want to look at what Jesus' is teaching on the kingdom of heaven is in this passage, particularly in Luke 11. And specifically, if you want to look there, verse 20 of Luke 11, where, where Jesus says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What do we learn about the kingdom of God here? Okay, So we've got to do some context first, because this is kind of a challenging passage in many ways. But you're going to see here, uh, that beginning in verse 14, and really all throughout, not only Luke's gospel, but all of the gospels, the recordings of Jesus' earthly ministry, that Jesus, everywhere he goes, is doing um, battle against satanic forces of evil. This is a regular part of his ministry, the kind of thing that happens here. He meets this, this, this man who is oppressed by a demon, and he's mute, and he casts the demon out. Uh, it's not a one-off event. So, for example, Matthew 4 Verse 23, we're told that Jesus went throughout Galilee. This is kind of a summary statement of what Jesus is doing. He went throughout Galilee, teaching, proclaiming the gospel, healing every disease. They brought to him all the sick and those oppressed by demons, and he healed them. So part of his ministry was direct confrontation with spiritual forces of evil. Okay, now we've we got to stop here for just a minute, don't we? Because in our in our, cultural, or in our culture, demonic activity... We're very cynical about this. It seems to be less obvious. Now, if you go to the third world, particularly where the gospel is exploding and expanding like it, like it did in the book of Acts, it's much more common. I was traveling in India uh, one time, and we were with a group, and we came upon a man, and he, um, he was very obviously, you know, the guys, I, I'm a white, middle-class American Presbyterian, okay? So my, my encouragement to you, if you ever go to a place like India, take some Pentecostals with you. You're going to need them when you get there, okay? Okay. So, really, so we're traveling, and, and we come across this guy, and they let me know. We think he's got, we think he's demon-possessed, and um, so we start to do work on this guy, and avo- and this is a, this is a man who does not speak English. He's Indian, you know, he's he speaks Tamil, and they start to pray and work on this guy, and, and a guttural voice in English speaks, and they, and the, I, and I, so I'm kind of like, okay, <laughs> My missionary friends start laughing. They, they just start cracking up. I'm like, why are y'all laughing? They said, because we didn't know demons spoke English. <laughs> there's the divide right there, okay? So I'm, I'm just saying, if you go to places like that, there's a lot more common these kinds of things. Why, though? Why? Is it because, uh, is it because people in the third world tend to be more superstitious than we are? That's part of it. Uh, but secularism has flattened out our understanding of the world we live in. There is, in our culture, there's no, more, no sense of transcendence. There's no, there's no spiritual realm, only what is physical, only what you can see. There's no connection in the minds of most people in our culture between spiritual and the physical. But in the text, in the text, look, there's a man with a physical problem. Verse 14, he's mute. He can't talk. But what we learn is that this physical condition has a spiritual cause. And when the spiritual, when Jesus removes the spiritual cause, it says he, there's a, he's mute, but there's a demon that was mute. And when he removes the spiritual cause, the physical problem is solved. The man starts to speak. And, and you know, and I, I mean, this is just kind of in the face of every assumption of secularism and what most of us are really comfortable with. But let me say, let's be careful be careful, so we can, we can err on the side of, of not allowing this sort of thing to still be true in our culture. We can also err on the side of over-spiritualizing, though it is true that sometimes physical problems have spiritual causes. Every physical problem doesn't have a spiritual cause. Some physical problems, some physical conditions have physical causes. Balance, we're looking for balance here. Nevertheless, there's something deeper, I think, going on with this that we need to talk about for a few minutes. If you look at the part of the world where demonic activity like this uh, is, is most active or, or is most overt in public. It's always the places where Christianity is, is exploding. It's always the front lines of gospel advance, and it's being opposed culturally or politically and therefore often spiritually. But we are much more settled into our Christianity in, in America, and with that seems to come a ceasing of the kind of frontal assault that you see here and in other places in the world. We have regulated demons to science fiction books and movies. I just want to say I don't think that signals progress. If anything, I think it means that the tide of the war has turned against us and we're not even aware of it. We're being acted upon by the same spiritual powers that we find here in the Bible. They haven't ceased to exist just because we've intellectually moved beyond them. The problem is that we're just unaware of what's happening. And this is what C.S. Lewis warned about In Screwtape Letters, if you've ever read the book, where Screwtape writes to his demon understudy, here are his words. Listen, he says, I wonder, you should ask me whether it's essential to keep the patient, this is the human, the patient in ignorance of your existence, he says to this demon understudy. That question, at least for the present phase of our struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. So, it it is a strategy of the enemy to hide himself. So, just because we don't see so much of this sort of thing happening around us, it doesn't mean we're better off. It doesn't mean it's not happening. It may mean that we've been beaten and we don't even know it. So, so the first thing we learn from the passage is that the Bible is set against the secular worldview. It just absolutely is. Instead, we learn the world is not flattened out. The world is not just what you can see and taste and feel. Instead, we learn the world in large part is under the power and dominion of spiritual forces of darkness. There are spiritual causes to many of the physical problems that we face, even as a society. And here's the good news. Jesus, we're told in this passage, has come to break the power of evil and set us free. In mere Christianity, I referred to Lewis a minute ago, but in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That's what we see Jesus doing in this text. He has come to confront the spiritual forces of evil and cast them out and rescue his people. Now this causes you notice there, much debate among his opponents because they recognized that there was a power at work in what he's doing here, but they weren't sure where the power was coming from. So verse 15, some believe that his power was itself demonic. He casts out demons by beelzebub the, the prince of demons, they say. But he, of course, quickly dismisses this. It makes no sense, Jesus says. Why would evil fight against evil? No, he claims it's not a demonic power. It's the power of God. Verse 20, the finger of God. That's the metaphor in the Bible for when God zaps something. He touches something with his power. It's not the power of evil that's on display in his ministry. It's the power of God. And that means there, verse 20, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's arrived, it's begun, you can access it, it's here, it's come. Okay, so let's unpack this for a minute. This image here that Jesus gives us is really helpful in verses 21 and 22. He says, uh, to explain all this that's happening in his ministry, he gives a little analogy. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one's stronger... Then he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divided his spoil. So Satan here is obviously the strong man; he has a certain strength and influence in the world, and he's taken certain you know people that belong to Jesus captive, uh, and they're under his sway and his power and they're being you know they're enslaved and imprisoned in his castle dungeon. but you know Jesus says here that though this is true that he is stronger still, and he is coming. And in his coming, he has plundered Satan and rescued those who belong to him from the dungeons and delivered them from his power and dominion. And, you know, when I read this this image, the first thing, I don't know why, but the first thing that comes to my mind to bring this into pop, pop culture just a little bit is the Liam Neeson movies, uh, the Taken movies. Do you, know, do you know these movies I'm talking about where, you know, he's just the wrong guy to mess with. And some poor, unsuspecting, um, you know, Eastern European terrorists kidnap his daughter, and all hell breaks loose. You know, you have this man, and, and there's a scene where, he, you know, she's being held in a house, and it's guarded by 30 guys with semi-automatics, and of course, he's probably got like a screwdriver and, a, and some duct tape or something, and he's going to go in there and like, take all these guys out, but one by one, right? He he, Because, he, you know, his daughter's in there, so he's got to go, and he, he invades the house where she's being held, and one by one, he overcomes all of the bad guys, and rescues her and carries her to safety and this is what Jesus this is Jesus saying this is really what I've come to do and it's a it's a picture of God's love and his power I think it's his love I mean the movie and this text is a wonderful picture of God's pursuing love for us the father's moved by compassion for his kidnapped daughter in the movie and his he searches for her to the ends of the earth and nothing's going to stop her from bringing her back to safety and how does God respond to our suffering by suffering with us. Compassion means that, to to suffer the same. So God has come in the midst of our pain and brokenness to suffer the same kind of uh, stuff that we suffer. But it's also a picture of his power, that the kingdom of God is God's transformative power breaking into the world. That's really the message of the text, that the kingdom of God is his transformative power breaking into the world. And so it's a promise for you and I. Let me just apply this for a minute. It's a promise for you and I in our personal lives, you know, wherever you are, wherever you're stuck, whatever the thing is you might be, you know, trying, trying desperately to overcome, wherever you just feel ground to a halt in your life, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It means if you turn to, to, to the Lord Jesus in faith and repentance, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, that, lit, that his power has come down from heaven and his power is crashing into and against your brokenness. But when that happens, when the power. When the love and the power of heaven come and begin to crash into your sin and brokenness and, and, and whatever the case might be, guess who always wins? Heaven does. But for us, as we imagine what our mission is in the city that God has called us to, this is a promise here not only of just personal transformation, but of social transformation remember the gospel is not that we can't wait to get out of here we want to get out of here as fast as we can and get up to heaven where everything's going to be great but the promise of the gospel is that in jesus heaven is truly coming down to earth so part of what we have to be engaged in is not just to see personal conversion but social transformation not just large crowds on sundays in this room but to make a visible change and difference in our city because that's what the gospel does so the kingdom of God means access to God's power for transformation in our day-to-day lives and our mission in the world. But what should our response be then? If it's, if it is, if it's access to power, how do, we, how do we access God's power like this so that we can begin to see these kinds of things happen to us? And the answer just is uh, through repentance and faith. Remember Jesus, Jesus said at the beginning of Mark, Mark's gospel, the kingdom of heaven has come, repent, believe in the gospel, so that's the response, and and we see that uh, here, but also we're going to look at Zechariah now from Luke chapter 1. I've used this illustration before, Uh, repentance and faith is what we're talking about, and here's how we're going to define it. Uh, By repentance and faith, we mean that we begin to live from the top down and not from the bottom up, okay, let me say that. So our repentance this morning is going to look like beginning to live from the top down because the kingdom of heaven has come to earth, and so we're living from the top down and not from the bottom up. Now, I've used this illustration before. A friend of mine told me a story not long ago that really stuck with me, but he was traveling in the mountains of some Central American country. I can't remember which one. Visiting with a missionary, and it was an absolutely beautiful day. Blue skies, not a cloud in the sky, and they were the sun was shining, and, and they were driving along a mountain ridge, and as they were driving... Uh, you know, the mountain fell off, and there was a valley over to their right. And uh, as the missionary was driving, um, he told his friend in the car, do you see that valley down there? Uh, And in the valley, as you know, if you've ever gone to the the, the mountains, Smoky Mountains or whatever, there were clouds settled down in the valley uh, beneath the valley ridge they were driving through, or, you know, the mountain ridge. And the missionary said, do you see that valley down there? There's a village in that valley, and for all those people know, today's a cloudy day. Uh, and, and the lesson of the story really stuck with me, and, and I think it's just this, is that the way you feel about your life, whether you go in, out into life with courage and faith and, and full of strength and confidence or cynicism and discouragement or fear really depends upon whether you view your life from the top down or whether you view it from the bottom up. If you start with your circumstances, it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? Those people, it, it, was, it was, you know, it's, it's perspective, If you start with your circumstances from the bottom up, you'll mistake low-hanging clouds for a cloudy, stormy day and not realize that in actuality, the sky is blue and the sun is shining. But if you start with your theology, if you start with what you know about God, if you start from the top down, things will look much, much different. The same set of circumstances will look completely different. You'll look at clouds and you'll say, that's not a cloudy day, it's just clouds. Behind it is the sun. I mean, you know this, you can take a shot. Excuse me, you can take the same picture, but if you use a different lens for the camera, the shot's going to look completely different, right? The lens, whatever lens you use in the camera makes the shot, same shot, but it makes it look very, very different. And so if you look at God through the lens of your circumstances, that's what the Bible means by unbelief. But if you look at your circumstances, if you look at what's going on around you through the lens of your theology, that's faith, the kingdom of heaven, is, the kingdom of God has come upon you, Jesus says. If you start there, if God's love and power accessible to you in Jesus Christ through repentance and faith, if that is the reality that controls all of the realities, if that is the lens through which you view all the rest of your life, then your circumstances will begin to look completely different. And so we've got to talk about what that looks like in, in real detail because it's the first move of it is what we call repentance, and in this move of repentance, we see in the story of Zechariah and the call to worship and the assurance of pardon passages that, that Jonathan read to you. And, and there, um, what, what we see is uh, Zechariah is a very helpful, of what it looks like for us to repent of living from the bottom up. Zechariah is a man who really is living from, from the bottom up. And in, in the passage, we're told there are lots of things going right for he and Elizabeth. Uh, but there's also one great sadness that overshadowed everything else, that Elizabeth was barren uh, and this devastated them. We know this because of the way that he responds to the angel when the angel comes to announce that he's going to have a son. He, he is cynical. He doesn't believe at first. He's defensive because he's been let down too many times before, so he doesn't want to get his hopes up uh, he doesn't, and then be disappointed again. And, and it's reasonable, don't you think, that he would feel this way? And yet, if you look there, the angel, the angel rebukes him and makes it so that he can't speak until the child is born as an act of judgment against his unbelief. I mean, you know, and I, and I read that and think, you know, that feels kind of harsh. Is that harsh? And the answer is no, it's not harsh, but it feels harsh to us because it shows just how embedded in the secular materialistic worldview we really are. I mean, Zechariah's reality is defined by Elizabeth's barrenness, not God's power or promise. You see that? So... So in Zechariah's imagination, in his mind, God's power is no match for Elizabeth's barrenness. And that's his problem. Life is not full of possibility for him. It's full of disappointment and discouragement because God is distant. God is uncaring. He's unconcerned. All these bad things are happening in, in his life. And where's God to sort it all out? And here's the problem with that Here. Is God showing up? Here is God drawing near in in Luke chapter 1. Here's God saying, I've heard your prayers and I'm going to do something about it. And when he comes, he still doesn't believe. He scoffs. Because his circumstances, Elizabeth's barrenness, has become the lens through which he looks even at God. His idea of God has been shaped by his experience, his pain. And that's unbelief. And that's living from the bottom up. And here's the irony. He Zechariah's name means God remembers. His very name means God remembers, but he has forgotten that God remembers. Life is not a random collection of circumstances that have no coherence or meaning. Life is an orchestration. And the melody that drives the whole thing is God's love. In our pain and disappointment and fear, God is not forgotten. He's not remote. Don't let your sadness, your fear, your your worry, your disappointment, don't let any of those things, don't let any of those things become the defining reality of your life. All, all of our struggles start right there. That's the sin underneath every sin. Sin isn't just breaking the rules. You don't, get, you don't get off that easy. The root of sin, the root of all sin, everything wrong in our lives is having the wrong life orientation. It's putting other things besides God at the center of your life and putting Him at the periphery. And that's why repentance means... Putting God back in the center of your life. That he goes first. Everything else comes after him. Repentance means you change the way you think about life. You stop living from the bottom up. And, and, and instead you turn to him in faith. And in faith you start living from the top down. The kingdom of God has come upon you, Jesus says. God is here. He is close. He loves you. The power of heaven has come down to crash into our brokenness and decay. And he wins every time. And that is the gospel. And that changes everything. My sin. The sin of others is no match for his love. My brokenness or the brokenness in others is no power, match for his power. My life is not limited by my limitations. It's not defined by the disappointments of my past or the fear I might have of my future. All of my life can be seen through the lens of his promise and his power, and that's faith. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the kingdom, the inbreaking love and power of God And the difference is the kind of change you see in Zechariah. That's why I wanted to use him as an illustration this morning. Uh, When the angel greets him, if you want to look back, in verse 13 of chapter 1 he says, Do not be afraid because Zechariah is afraid. He's terrified. His life is full of big scary things that he is no match for. God's love and power aren't real to him. And so he's in self-protection mode. He's careful with his heart. And that's why he's so slow to believe. But something happens to him in the course of this experience. And when he finally does find his voice... This is what he sings, and I hope this is what we'll meditate on around, around family dinner tables in the coming week. Listen to his words in Luke 1, 74, and 75. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness, before him all the days of our lives. That we might serve him without fear. That's the transformation. Experiencing God's love and power took away his fear. So now his life is no longer defined by the inevitability of his circumstances, but by the possibilities of the kingdom of God. Do you hear that? His life's not defined by the inevitability of his circumstances. That's cynicism and, and unbelief. It's defined by the possibilities of the kingdom of God. Now he believes that whereas before... God's power was no, was no match for Elizabeth's barrenness. Now he's come to see that Elizabeth's barrenness is no match for God's power. And that's the change. Faith, living from the top down, means that the kingdom come is the starting point for how you understand your whole life, your emotional life, your relationships, your risk assessment. All of it is anchored in the realities of the heavenly kingdom now on the earth. Circum- if, I, I, you know, let me use a math analogy, okay? I'm trying to cover all the bases here this morning. So if you're a math nerd, circumstances are not the constant and God's love the variable. His love and power are the constant. Your circumstances are the variable. Which means you can live with an unchanging, unwavering inner joy and peace no matter what's happening around you. You can have an abiding inner strength and buoyancy that will keep you going no matter what happens in your circumstances don't you want that i do and that's faith that's living from the top down not from the bottom up sure life's hard sometimes our sin runs deep but grace is more sure there are spiritual strongholds that we are sure to come up against that you may feel like me in india you have no idea how in the world what to do i mean what are we supposed to, we're no match for these things but we're told here we may not know, that, you know how to navigate all of those things, but one thing we can know for sure, Jesus is the plunderer of the strong man. And the solution to our sin and brokenness is top down, isn't it? Not bottom up. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't start with us. It always starts with God. And isn't that what Christmas is all about, really? The baby born in Bethlehem, who is he? I mean, Christians believe that he is very God of very God. Come down from heaven to earth to rescue us. The love And the power of heaven come down to meet us where we are. Because we couldn't in a million years go up. We can't climb up to him. He must come down. Listen, this is how salvation works. The psalmist sings, I lift my eyes up. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The psalmist doesn't look within himself for a solution to his problems. He doesn't look around For the solution to his problems, he looks up. He looks up to heaven. He looks up to God, and that's faith. Now, let me just finish before we come to this table, and I want you to look down at the very end of this uh, this passage in chapter eleven of Luke's gospel, where Jesus ends with this statement uh, down there in verse twenty-three. These are really dangerous stories. These these Christmas stories that we tell around this time of year. The problem is that we've allowed them to become far too sentimentalized. But there is a supernaturalism that's indicated here in Luke 11 that also happens in these stories that we tell around the events of the birth of Christ. And we have to reckon with it. There are angels. There are miracles. There's crazy things going on because God has come. Another world literally has broken into this world. And Jesus, excuse me, God has left the air of heaven to breathe the dust of earth. The cry of that baby born in the manger in Bethlehem Pierced through the veil that secularism claims separates heaven from earth, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is now here among us. It's come upon us. And so C.S. Lewis, if I could go back to him one more time in writing about these things, says Christianity just this just <laughs> this, it's just like a, a, a nail in in you know in the coffin of so much of our of our unbelief. But he says. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. There are really only two rational responses. You you know, to worship Jesus or to walk away from him. What doesn't make sense is the way way we casually approach spiritual things. If Christianity is true, if it's true, you've got to decide if it is. But if it's true, it matters more than anything else. You should, stay, you, should, you should stop everything and stake your whole life on it. If it's not true, and you should find out if it is. If it's not true, then it doesn't matter at all. But this one foot in, one foot out, neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm American evangelical religious consumerism, that is that is not rational. I have my uh, sexy bass voice this morning because I went to the floor-to-floor state game last night. And... Um, and I didn't really yell that much because I, I, I considered myself a guest, but I tried to do, I wore a, I wore a gray Florida State shirt, because I've been in Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, and no offense to the Gator fans, it's pretty, pretty bad there for opposing teams. So I wore my gray Florida State shirt with a kind of a blue two-toned uh, hoodie jacket zipped up just enough to where the little Seminole head was peeking through just a little. <laughs> so I was incognito. My son went, and he was like decked out, garnet shirt, garnet hat, my dad was very proud of him. He called me a traitor. Nevertheless, and, and then when we started to win, I didn't even break it out. I kept it zipped up because I figured it could, get, it could get really bad, but I, I say that to say um, it, there really is, uh, the, you know, as much as I may have tried to, to find neutrality, that, it's not a place where there really is any such thing as neutrality, uh, and there is no Switzerland in spiritual things either. I mean, that's what Jesus means when he says at the very end of Luke Luke 11 here, whoever is not with me is against me. Do you see that verse 23? And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no mushy middle. Uh, The gospel, gospel, these stories won't won't let you settle into the mushy middle. There's no neutrality. You either fall at his feet and worship him and obey him in everything or walk away. You're either actively helping him in his work or you're working against him. You're either actively nurturing those around you towards faith and obedience, or you're actively nurturing them towards unbelief. You can't be passive because this is enemy-occupied territory. Uh, you know, and years ago, kind of a, a well-known pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention, David Platt, he wrote a book called Radical, and it really on with a lot of people. And not because I, I you know, I, I have anything against Southern Baptists. I, I love them quite a, quite a lot, actually. But I just really, it really rubbed me the wrong way because I read the book, and honestly... I was really put off by it because I didn't find anything radical in it. I mean, and, and, it, and it, it reminded me of a book that a, a, a Chinese missionary named Watchman Nee uh, who, who wrote similar things 50 years ago, really even more, more uh, challenging things than David Platt read in the book. And, and the title of Nee's book was The Normal Christian Life. And, and it, you know, and it's it just kind of really radical. This just sounds like Christianity to me was kind of my take with that. And I, and I wish he would have just called it Christianity 101 or something. I mean, John Eldridge said, we're not born into a sitcom or a soap opera. This is a world at war. He said, he said this isn't home improvement, it's saving Private Ryan. You know, so which is it? I, I hated to put it that bluntly. That's where the text takes us, I think. Christ has come to wage war on evil. The kingdom of God has come upon you. It's advancing upon the earth. And so if Christmas, Christmas, if Christmas is true, then you can hate Jesus like the Jewish, Jewish leaders did. You can be terrified of him and try to run away from him like most of the disciples did at first. Or you can bow down before him and give him your whole life. But those are really the only options. So which is it? Which is it? That's where the text leaves us. And so, so let's leave it there too. Let's pray as we come to the table this morning. Lord Jesus, we, we confess to you that we try to wiggle out of the demands that you make upon us here in this text and other places. We want, we want a mushy middle where we can have one foot in and one foot out. Uh, we want to do a spiritual hokey-pokey of some sort, and you won't let us. You have come, and unashamedly, and, and I, I thank you for men like Luke who write about the things that happened around your birth and who have no shame in saying, look, this is the truth deal with it. And so you ask us to do just that. And so now we come uh, as an expression of our repentance and faith to this table to turn away from all of the things that we're looking to, to to feed us. Apart from you, all of the happinesses that we're trying to find for ourselves that have nothing to do with you, oh Lord, heal our unbelief even in these moments as we gather around this table. Strengthen us in our faith uh, that we might truly be a people uh, that serve you without fear in holiness and righteousness before you all our days. That is our desire and our hope, and so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The text says every one of us in the room is either in the dungeons of the strong man or in the, or in the free countries of the one who's plundered him. There is no in-between. There's no mushy middle. And so, if anything, this time of year really forces us to really come to grips with the claims uh, of Christianity, which I hope is why you're here. And so, if, if, if this morning you turn to him in faith and repentance, then no. That this benediction I pronounce over you is the promise of his power and of his love that may come crashing against your brokenness, but that will prevail. That's the promise of the text, and it's the promise of these words. So reach out to him in faith, uh, because he is the one who has overcome sin and overcome evil on our behalf and can set us free uh, where we need him to. That's the promise. And so receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in space.